Okay, for those that are watching us, because I've had some people tell me, they told me last week, they said, it disappeared. It's Just pretend right here above my head on the video screen, if you're watching, that it says Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 through verse 24. Because I couldn't figure out how to put that back there uh, this morning, but it, it, it says it. Yeah, that's where we're going to. Turn with me this morning back to Hebrews chapter 12. And I want to teach the second lesson to you in this series in town, entitled Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Let's go back there uh, to look at verse, we're going to back up for just a second, look at verse 18, 21. We're just going to read it because we have to put this in its proper context. And I want you to think back for just a moment because Paul here in this uh, part of the epistle is drawing a contrast between the old covenant and the new covenant, between being under the law and being under grace. And in the last lesson, we saw that Paul had told these Hebrew believers, now keep in mind what has been happening to these people. They have been going through persecution, chastisement over the gospel, right? They had uh, professed faith in Christ. They had followed our Lord Jesus Christ in believers' baptism. They had forsaken their former religion and come out and were gathered with the brethren in, in worship and in fellowship. And now they were being persecuted because of their identification with that which was called the way. Yeah, and, and, and we, have, we have trouble understanding that, and we really do. You, know, you and I, and I've said this all throughout this section on chastisement, we don't really know what it is to be chastised or to be, be really uh, persecuted over the gospel. I mean, there might be a few unkind words on Facebook, a few <laughs> pejoratives slung around, but if that's the worst that I ever have to endure... It's not me losing my job. It's not me losing a place that I have loved and been a part of all my life. It's not being uh, me being ostracized. Because even though me and, and my, my family believe a different gospel, and we have a different hope, we still get together at Christmas time, at holidays, at you know, Labor Day, Memorial Day, you know, and, and we enjoy one another's company as long as the gospel doesn't come up. And they've learned through the years, don't bring it up. They just, they, they speak of us in this respect. Me and Pam, they say, oh, they believe a little different than we do. Well, we don't. We believe an entirely different gospel. I mean, I, 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 and I want people to understand that. I know you understand it sitting in front of me, but people out there, this, 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 is, not, this is not some fringe. I, and I, I encourage you, go, go, go search history and go, go look. Go, you only have to go back like 200 and 220 years, maybe not even that far. And you'll find out that what we're preaching here was in, not in the minority, it was in the majority. And those that were on the other side was in the minority. And then all of a sudden, we got more educated and got, got wiser in our own eyes, I think. And then all of a sudden, things begin to change. And now, most people, when they hear what we preach and believe, they think, I ain't ever heard that. Well, the reason you never heard it, seminaries don't teach it anymore. 
which I, I think that's a foolish way to go about this thing anyhow. Uh, it's, it's not preached in these... Listen, could you envision what this message would do if this was a mega church? <laughs> it wouldn't be a mega church very long. Well, I take it back. It would still be a mega, mega church. What would happen? It'd get rid of the, the source of the irritation. They would excise the one preaching it, teaching it. Now, I'll never forget. I, I wish I could find it. Got a dear brother in Christ that is a member of Bill's church down in Albany, and he was at one of the bigger Baptist churches there uh, in Georgia, in, in Albany, Georgia. I mean, a large church. And uh, the Lord was pleased to reveal himself in him and to him, and he taught the young people in the church, like the the teenager, like all does right here behind me. And uh, he was teaching and beginning to teach what he had heard from Bill. And the preacher, some of the parents began to complain, and the preacher came to him and told him, you can't say these things anymore. He said, we don't, that's not what we believe and teach here. Well, he was friends with the secretary of the church, and she said, could, he asked her, could you get me the, the church covenant? And I've got, I wish I could find it. I've got a copy of it. It was a handwritten church covenant of the church from back in the, not like 1918, something like that. It was word for word what we preach. Same language. He carried it to the preacher, you know, because he's, kind, he's one of these guys. <laughs> he's very, very forward on, on, on approaching things. Like he carried it directly to the preacher and said, look, you said we don't believe this. And he handed it to the preacher. The preacher read it. Read through it, he looked at me and said, well, they used to believe that, but we don't believe that no more. Now, who changed? See? But these people, because of what they had believed, they lost everything. And here's the thing. Paul, in essence, is telling them the same thing our Lord has told us, the same thing all the apostles have said throughout the, 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 all of the epistles, Peter, James, and John. We're, you know, we ought to count it a joy. <laughs> and what he said, they counted a joy that, remember Paul and Barnabas when they were cast in prison, they sang praises at night that they were counted worthy, listen to this, counted worthy to suffer for his name's sake. And so he's telling them, look, this is not this persecution, this chastisement, this correction for instruction that the Lord has given those that are, that are true believers, it is, it's not the punishment of God. This isn't that God's correcting you because you're in error. It's, a, it's, it's in reality proves that what they believe and what they hold to dogmatically is the truth of the gospel, that it glorifies and honors God. And so he had told these, he had told these believers, these Hebrew believers, that were endured chastisement over the gospel. He tells them the same thing he always tells them. You're not under the law. And he represented being under the law in a very unique way so he can draw a contrast. He represented it with what? The fear and trembling that was involved in what? The giving of the law. Where? On Mount Sinai. And as we told you last week, there was no mercy seen anywhere in any of that that was done. I thought about that again this week. I, I, 
went back and I listened to the lesson last week, and I, I, you, know, you, you think it was, it was so terrifying and so frightening. Notice the language here in verse 18. You are not come under the mount, and that, that word are not come means you're not drawn, you don't draw near to. And I tell you what, he warned them, did he not? If, you, if anything touches this mountain, what's going to happen to you? Kind of sim- it kind of reminds me of where when God told them, if you build an altar out of earth, what are you never supposed to put on it while you're building it? Don't you put no tools on it. And if you use any tools to construct this altar, what have you done? You've defiled it. You've polluted it. Also think of us. <laughs> King David wants the Ark of the Covenant. Important to national Israel. They go down and they carry a new cart down to get to Ark of the Covenant to bring it back down to Jerusalem. And David's in front of them playing his, his timbrel or whatever instrument he plays and dancing and singing praises. And they've loaded the Ark of the Covenant on a new cart, bringing it back. And they come to a little ravine, a mud hole basically, and as they go through it, the cart begins to shake and the ark begins to fall off. And, you know, you wouldn't want the, the, the ark of the covenant. You know, to our minds, you think it's kind of like Peter. Well, I got all kind of <laughs> offshoots going. Kind of like Peter, you know. Far be it from there. Our Lord told me he must needs go to Jerusalem and suffer and bleed and die. And what did he say? Far be it from there. This will never happen to you. And how did our Lord respond to him? Get thee behind me, Satan. You savor not the things of God, you savor the things of man. And God had given Israel clear-cut instructions. Who's the only ones that can? And they couldn't even touch the ark. They had to take staves and put it down the side of the ark. Who? The Levites. Uzzah was not a Levite. And Uzzah, because he didn't want the ark of the covenant upside down on the ground, he thought, I'll just stop it. And when his hand touched the ark, what did God do? Satan didn't do it. God did it. God killed him. Killed him dead instantly. And old David, what did David do? David got angry, upset. Can't believe that God would do this. And God had to straighten him out. You have instructions. You follow my instructions. Because that ark is a picture of who? Christ. Christ Christ went through what he went through alone. It was a transaction between him and the Father. And there ain't no men's hands ever to be put to any of it. Not our faith, not our morality, not our sincerity. So he says, you are not come to that mount that, burnt, that might be touched and that burn with fire nor into blackness and darkness and tempness and the sound of a trumpet and Voice of words, which voice that they heard entreated, uh, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. Don't tell us anything. (laughs) For they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it was stoned or thrust through with a dart. and And so terrible was the sight that the one who gave the law 
all was given by Moses, grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. The one who was given, who brought the law to Israel said, I exceedingly fear and quake. But in our text this morning, Paul shows us the joy of another mountain. Which mountain? Mount Zion. Spelled S-O-I-N in our text. Which is a picture of what? Salvation by grace through Christ. Mount Zion. Look at the references he gives. He said, you're come to Mount Zion. You're come where? To the city of the living God. Where else have we come to? We have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. Every one of these terms, you know what they are? They're all different terms for the same exact thing. Every one of them. What are they talking about? They're talking about the new covenant. They're talking about the gospel economy. Believers, listen, we we do not stand at the foot of an earthly mountain. Nor, listen to this, we don't, as believers, we're not to view God as unreconciled, as an angry judge. How do believers view God? See, this is the thing that's so important to you and me. We're encouraged and we're admonished by our God through his apostle that we are to come what? Boldly. Not brashly. Come boldly where? To the throne. Not to the throne of the law. What do we come to? To the throne of grace. How in the world is it the throne of grace? We come to where? Our heavenly father. Our Lord told his apostles, you and me, his disciples, he told him, he said, I go to my father and your father. Well, we're all God's children. That's a, that's, a, that's a whole different thing. We're not. We're not all God's children. And we're not. If we weren't chosen in the everlasting covenant of grace, given to our surety and substitute the Lord Jesus Christ, if we were not vessels of mercy prepared before unto glory, we are not sheep, we are not wheat, we're not becoming sheep, we're not becoming wheat, we're not vessels of mercy that are vessels of wrath fitted for destruction that are somehow miraculously going to turn into vessels of mercy. We're children of the devil. You say, well, that's just not fair. Again, take that up with God Almighty. He's God, not, not you or I. We don't determine these things. But we come to our Heavenly Father, listen, who has promised you and me, all those he's given true God-given faith to, Rest in his son. He's promised us what's going to happen to us one day. We're going to be glorified together with his son. All of us. And here's what's so important. God, this God that we don't approach as an unreconciled deity, but as our heavenly father, he has engaged everything about his person, his entirety of his being, every attribute of his character to do that thing exactly. What? To be faithful to his promise. I am so grateful for, for, for the, 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 the various promises 
in words of comfort that God gives us. I think one of the ones that's becoming more and more precious to me with each passing day of my life is Lamentations chapter 3, where he says, uh, well, <laughs> what did he say? He said, uh, uh, oh, what did he say? Well, I tell you, it's, it's, it's tough getting old. I'll be honest with you. Yeah. My lamentation is lamentations. I think it's lamentations. All right, I know it. It's of the Lord's mercy we're not consumed. It just popped in my head. It's of the Lord's mercy we're not consumed. His compassions fail not. They are fresh every morning. Great is thy faith. I don't see anything about me in there other than being an object of it. It's not that I'm trying hard or I've walked a straight and narrow. It's his mercy. It's his compassion. It's his faithfulness to be reveal himself in his character to his people as a just God and a Savior based on the imputed righteousness of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who on my behalf, on the behalf of all God's elect, rendered perfect satisfaction to God's law and justice as our substitute and surety. Listen to this. Isaiah said this. Surely shall one say in the Lord, have I righteousness and strength? Even to him shall men come. To who? This one that we have righteousness and strength in. And all that are incensed against him, and in other words, everybody that holds this person that is the only righteousness in contempt, which is what they're doing just about in every church across this country and across this globe today. You say, oh, no, 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 no. They're gathered and they're singing songs and they're, they're, they're waving their hands and they're praying and somebody's going to get up and preach. I tell you, they're not going to tell people about this righteousness. I'm telling you. They're not, they're not going to point center. They'll, they'll use clever language. They'll use a lot of the same exact phrases and words that we'll say. They'll say, you know, salvation is God's gift totally and completely, and we are justified based on Christ's blood and his righteousness alone. Sounds right so far, right? But then they add this little caveat at the end of it. Only if you'll accept him. That's where the truth got turned into a lie right there. Because see, those men that make that, and women too today, those people that make that kind of a statement, they've never seen the reality of what God has said concerning this thing of men and their deadness and their destitution and their hatred of salvation God's way. They think men can come. And our Lord says what? No man can come. So how are you going to call on somebody and tell them only if you'll accept him when the scriptures say they can't accept him, they won't accept him, they'll reject him repeatedly. But for the grace of God, we would too. The only reason you believe this is what? He gave you faith. That's it. In the Lord, we're in the Lord, shall all 
How many shall all the seed of Israel? Not talking about over there. Hopefully, by God's mercy and grace, there are some out of that national Israel that might be part of this Israel, but we know from what Romans chapter 2 tells us what not all Israel is Israel. And he's not a Jew, Romans chapter 2, verse I think it's verse 30 and 31. It says he's not a Jew who's one's outwardly, nor is circumcision outward in the flesh. Who's a Jew? He's a Jew, a true Jew, true Israel. This, this that he says in the Lord shall all the seed of Israel be declared righteous, be justified, and shall glory. Why? Because we have, in, in the Lord have our righteousness and strength. You see that? He's a Jew, which is one inwardly. And circumcision is not that which is of the flesh, but he tells us, listen, let me read it to you because I don't want to get it wrong. He is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart. That's, that's the regeneration and conversion. That's the circumcision of the heart where he takes out that heart of stone and he puts in a heart of flesh in the spirit and not in the letter. See, those natural Jews, they had the letter of the law. Dead in trespasses and sin. Whose praise is not of men, because that's why that, that's why all them people that, that's why most people do the things that they do. They do it to be seen to men. You say, no, no, they don't. I'm telling you, they they think that it makes a difference. And they want you to believe they're saved because they don't they do it and they're scared to death. If they don't do it, what will you think? Pride is a pride goes before what? A fall. And a haughty spirit before destruction. You think about it. You and I have been adopted into God's family, which includes all the holy angels as well as all the saints in, in heaven and on earth. And we don't have to earn a position in the family of the household of God. We have a permanent, listen to this, we have a permanent abiding position in God's family and his household through Christ by his grace based on his blood, his righteousness alone. Now this gospel state is called a city. He says you are come to the city. And that three words unto the city is one word and it means uh, one city of origin. Your birth. Your birthplace. Remember the Jews, three times a year, what did what every male child have to do? They had to go up to Jerusalem, to the city of origin. And we're called to this city to reveal our safety and security as long as we're in this city. The beautiful picture of this in the Old Testament. You know what it's called? They created, God gave them instructions to make city, cities refuge. And if you had accidentally, if you had accidentally murdered somebody, you was out working in the field and you had a hoe or an axe and you hit something with an axe and the axe head flew off and it hit and killed Kenny. <laughs> that sounded like an episode from South Park. It killed Kenny. It hit Kenny and Kenny, it killed Kenny. 
The first thing I had to do, you know what I, I, I better do? I'd throw that axe handle down, and I wouldn't even tell anybody. You know where I'd head? I'd head to the city of refuge because Kenny's family, even though it was an accident, they would hire what was called the manslayer. And the manslayer was sent after to pursue me. And if he caught me before I got to the city of refuge, he was free and just to kill me. With no repercussions on him. That's something you accidentally kill somebody. You got to run for your life. He kills the one who's running. You can't send somebody after the manslayer. And the good thing about it, when you go back and you read that story, there were clear sign marks posted along the way to tell you exactly how to get to that city. And so I'm, I hit to the city and I get inside. As long as I'm in that city, safe. Manslayer can't come in, can't do anything to me, and nobody can cast me out of the city. But if for any reason I step outside the gate, even 20 years later, I step outside that gate and the manslayer's grandson's out there waiting on me, you know what he can do? He can kill me. Christ is our city of refuge. We're safe and secure in him. And he calls it this. He calls it the city of the living God. Isn't it amazing? That our God has to distinguish himself from all these other gods that are dead gods. We're coming to the city of the living God to reveal who established it. It's, it's whose city? It's his city. And not only did he establish it, what will he do? He'll preserve it and keep it. And every power of this world, along with the powers of hell, they can't disinherit believers of their interest or their habitation into this heavenly city. We're all one body, one bride, one family, and Christ is our head. Now, here's the difference. Those who are already in heaven... They're much happier, are they not? But they're no more secure than the weakest saint of God on this earth. That's, that's our comfort. Again, I tell you what, you, you look around and with, with everything that's going on in this world, the madness that's in this world, I hope it teaches all of us that this is no abiding place for you and me. This is not our home. I mean, I'm not hastening to get out of here. Don't get me wrong. But I tell you what, it, the older I get, and if, if I'm this way at 65, I can't begin to imagine what I'll be when I'm in my 80s. This, this place is just misery and heartaches, all it is. Pain on every front, both physically, mentally, emotionally, and even spiritually while we're trapped in these bodies of clay, in this old fleshly nature. But I tell you, even now, we're going to preach on this this morning. Right now, there's no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. None. Look at verse 23. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. 
believers are right now coming to the assembly and they're coming to the church of the firstborn. And that's important. It's the church. Who was the firstborn? Christ, according to Romans chapter 8, Christ was the firstborn among many brethren. You see that? He's the firstborn. And it's made up of all God's elect of all time and all places. And since Christ is referred to as the firstborn, what does that make him? He's the heir of God, and we're the joint heir of God. And as an heir, what does that mean? What is according under Jewish tradition, remember when when whoever was the firstborn, what did they get? They got the firstborn right. They got the largest portion. They, they under before the the priesthood and everything was established, they became the spiritual leader and head of the household is what they became. That was what was so so such a troubling thing when all of a sudden God took Jacob, who was the second born, and gave him birthright. Now that's just not that's not the way it's just it's the first person always gets surprised, right? Not in grace. Not in grace. And since he's the firstborn, what does that mean? He has a preeminence in all things. You and I, as heirs of God, what are we? We're, we're joint heirs with him by the adoption of grace. And as adopted sons and daughters of God, we have a vested interest in the whole inheritance. And he tells us something very important here. He says here, which are written in heaven. Remember in false religion when they, when they would say this, when somebody got saved? What happened to you? What'd they do with you? They, they wrote your name in the Lamb's Book of Life. That is totally unscriptural. Huh? Our names, if we're his, were written in the book when? In heaven, before the foundation of the world. Uh-huh. That's why he came. He came for his bride. He was Listen, our Lord was betrothed to us before the foundation of the world. Or take it back. We were betrothed to him. Let me get the language right. We were betrothed to him before the foundation of the world. And when we fell in Adam, he was to come and get his bride that fell with everybody else right along with Adam. All of We, we, we are enrolled citizens of heaven. And everything that Christ has is ours. All things are his. All things spiritual. But he states something else. He says next that we're come to the, every one of these we're come to. Yeah. We're come to the judge, God, God the judge of all. Why did he make that statement? Who's the supreme authority? God is, right? There's nobody else you can appeal to above him, right? He says this, if God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? You see that? Give us all things. All things work together. Give us all things. What all things? A house, 
a home here, a car, money in the bank. Nope, that ain't all things. All things are all things spiritual and eternal. All things are ours. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? God that justifies. And if he justifies, can't Satan, nor the law, nor mom, nor dad, nor friend, nor family or foe charge you with anything. And me either. And that's the thing. God has justified believing sinners according to strict law and inflexible justice based on the only sacrifice that could satisfy himself with. What? The righteousness of his dear son. And he has judged his people worthy in Christ of how much? The whole inheritance in its entirety. Not based on their character and conduct, but based on the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, their substitute and surety. And that right there is where we ought to take our, we, we ought to put a base camp right there and stay there for the remainder of our lives. Because we can't improve on, on what we've been given in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll say this, and I want to make this as clear as I can. No sinner has ever seen the true nature of God's love until he's rejoiced in the fact that, in, in, that God's holiness and God's truth demand his or her salvation based on the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why we're so dogmatic on this thing that as long as, as, as any person thinks that any sinner for whom Christ died could ultimately perish and end up in hell, they do not know and they cannot love the true and living God. Because <clears throat> this is the thing. The love of God has never been shed abroad in the heart of a sinner until they see that. And uh, let me give you an illustration. People, I've, I've had people... They, and I remember I used to think that. I used to think that this was a sign that I was saved, that I thought I was a dirty, dull, black, good-for-nothing, worthless sinner that fully deserved God's justice. If he sent me to hell, he'd be just and right and proper in doing so. That's not salvation. You see? Well, what, if that's not salvation, what is salvation? Salvation is this, seeing that in spite of the fact that I am condemned and unworthy and fully deserve condemnation and death, even now, see? Can you point to anything that you've done since you woke up this morning that's worthy of life? Don't, I was going to say, I was gonna, I'm about to say, name me one thing. I was scared somebody like, like I got something. <laughs> we have a problem there. One thing, just today. Well, stretch it back over this week. Over the last seven days. Or stretch it to my lifetime over 65 years. Is there anything that I can point to anywhere in my 65 years of life on this planet can say it's worthy and it deserves and it demands my acceptance in the glory? And the answer is what? Absolutely nothing. Well, you, you're good that Nothing. Well, you preach. <laughs> I, I, t I thank God. I, I do. I, I, and this is not false humility. This is a reality. 
I thank my God through Christ Jesus, my Lord, my acceptance before the true and living God does not depend upon my preaching. That's why it kills me when people think, well, I just want to preach. I want to preach. Be careful what you want. Because I tell you, being a preacher doesn't validate whether you're a child of God or not. I'm going to tell you what, I I was walking down that path one day this week and it flashed through my mind like a lightning bolt and I thought, I thought of the awesome responsibility it is to stand up here and preach and teach to you people and all these people that watch us out there. And I think, and and you, 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 you think, I hope I didn't call myself to this. People all the time ask, well, how did you know? Well, I I just knew I couldn't do anything else. I remember one time asking Henry Mahan years ago, I asked him, I said, Henry, how do you know if you're called to preach? He said, can you do anything else? And I said, well, I can't see myself doing anything. He said, well, he said, preach until you get to the point where you think, see yourself being wanting to do something else more than wanting to talk about him. And so I carry on. But, I mean, Satan attacks my mind all times and think, you know, with, with these thoughts that run through my mind, what if you've taken this role to yourself? And I've stood up now for 30, almost 37 years in front of y'all and the, you that have come in lately. I, that, I, that's, that's staggering to think about that. We need, we need to be, be careful about the way we handle the Word of God. You know, salvation is not, and I can remember thinking that, that's, that's what it is. Salvation, though, is believing that, that God, in spite of all that, he, he has saved me and justified me and sanctified me and considers me in His Son holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in His sight. That's salvation. Because we always want to fall back on that stuff, don't we? All of us. And see, this blessedness gives believers such an assurance of pardon and forgiveness and acceptance. It gives us such assurance of our justification and our sanctification and our adoption that you know what we can do? We can boldly come to the judge of all. I don't have to go to him afraid. Now, I do reverence him, but I'm not afraid of him. Why am I not afraid of him? He's the judge of all, and he's sitting on a throne of grace, Kenny. Listen to this. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me in that day, and not to me only is he going to give this crown of righteousness. Who else is he going to give it to? But unto all them also that love his appearing. And we all say with John, come quickly, Lord Jesus Christ. See, that's true God-given faith. But next he tells us in this verse, he says, we're come to the spirit of just men made perfect. Think about that. Who's that? That's believers that are where they're at now. They're in heaven. This is believers that right now they are enjoying the reward based on the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ. And right now, you know what? They plead in heaven the same thing we plead on this earth. What? The blood and righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. The only thing they lack is what? 
they lack resurrected bodies one day, which we ourselves lack too. It will get at his appearing. But look at verse 24. And we're come, where else are we come to? Thank God for this. We're come to the meet to Jesus, the mediator. And here we go. What is, he's the mediator of the new covenant. And to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Where are we come to? We're come to Jesus Christ, the mediator of the new covenant. We're not come to Moses. Not come to the mediator of the old covenant. So many people want to go back to that old covenant. Put themselves back under the law. But see, think about this. Jesus is such a mediator who substituted himself in the stead of his sheep to do everything necessary to reconcile God toward his elect and toward God that they're accepted in the blood. This blood is sprinkling. It's both justifying and it's purifying blood. We'll come to the blood of sprinkling when we understand that this blood satisfied every condition of our salvation and merited for us all grace here and all glory hereafter, all of it according to God's promise. And this blood of sprinkling speaketh. And that word speaketh, you know what it means? It means to, to speak with a loud voice. It cries out. This blood demands justification, eternal life for all those whom the Lord Jesus Christ shedded. And you think about this, that blood, the same blood, spoke when he shed it on the cross. And it continued to speak and plead out and cry. What does it cry out for? For the full, free, eternal salvation of every single solitary heir of God, all those that are saved according to the promise. But then he gives us something else here. And this is so important. And I want to see, I want to show you this real quick and we'll close. He says that it would come to the Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than the blood of Abel. Now, we don't have time to do it, but I'd encourage you to go back and read Genesis chapter 4, verse 9, 9 through 13. That was right after Cain had killed Abel. And our Lord said, where's your brother? He asked him, where's your brother? How'd Cain respond? Am I my brother's keeper? And this was the next words out of the Lord's mouth. He said, thy brother's blood crieth to me from the ground. And then he tells him right after he says it, his brother call, he looks at him and he says, you're cursed. You're cursed. Now get this, Abel's blood could only plead for one thing. What could it call for? Death, vengeance. That's all it called for. Christ's blood, what does it do? It doesn't call for vengeance. It calls for mercy for everybody by whom it's shed. So it, is, it does speak better things, right? Cain would be an illustration of the law. It, it says and demands perfect obedience. And when you don't render it, what do you get? It wages a sin death. But thank God, the gift of God. The wages of sin death, the gift of God, eternal life, where? Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We'll stop and we'll pick up in verse.